Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's up, everybody? It's Ash Bennington. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Today, I'm joined by Lars Sire Christensen, the founder and chairman of Concordium Foundation, also the founder of Sire Bank and Saxo Bank, excuse me, Sire Capital and Saxo Bank, I should say. Lars, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and we're going to discuss a lot about the broader context of what's happening in crypto, particularly from the perspective of financial services and regulated markets. Lots to talk about here today. But first, I want to take a look at some price action. Bitcoin trading right now at 30418 uh, It's up uh, about 2% on a trailing seven-day basis. Trailing 24 hours, eh, it's almost flat. It's down about a quarter of a percent. Ethereum tr uh, trading right now at $1,859. On a trailing 24-hour basis, it's down about half a percent. Ethereum is on a trailing seven-day basis. It's up about half a percent. Let's take a look at Concordium, which trades under the symbol CCD. Right now, it's trading at spot 008355 on coin market cap. Also, I wanted to take a look at something else as we're talking about this, which is the daily GBTC premium discount to net asset value. This has come in quite a bit. Uh, remember. Back in December, this was trading at about 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, now it's come into nearly uh, just over a 30% discount. So obviously, this represents price strengthening, some speculation on that uh, about the fact that this is uh, something that we're seeing in the wake of the BlackRock ETF. Uh, but that's the price action right there, and the chart tells the story uh, quite eloquently. Lars, really exciting to have you here. I mentioned at the top of the show that you're the founder of Sire Capital and, of course, Saxo Bank for our friends in Europe. Uh, who have probably heard of that institution. I want to talk a little bit about your background, your journey into crypto. You were involved in this space very early for someone who has very deep and serious uh, financial experience in traditional financial services. Yeah, uh, uh, Saxo Bank was, was a very early adopter of the internet. We made one of the first online trading platforms in the world, really. And uh, obviously, when you you had some uh, some success with uh, with with benefiting from transformative te technology back in the day. You you can't help looking for the next one, and a uh, few people made me aware of Bitcoin very early on, uh, or relatively early on, but maybe 2011, 2012, and I, uh, I I took an interest in it both from sort of the ideology that was driving it. I'm a little bit of a libertarian myself, right? But uh, uh, but also, of course, I saw it as a potential asset for us to have on the platform one day. Uh, so as I looked more into it, uh, I uh, I got uh, 
more and more enthusiastic about this new space, not least the blockchain itself uh, and uh, the many, many uh, applications that uh, that might might have for for very many processes and in different industries. So it reminded me a bit about the early internet days and uh, and it still reminds me a little bit about the early internet days, to be honest. Yeah, at Texobank, you guys were early uh, to some of those technologies that took place during the first internet boom. Uh, let's talk about what specifically that you identified uh, back in 2012, because this was extremely early. Lots of folks in the TradFi space were incredibly dismissive of this technology. What was it that you saw or identified that made you think this was an asset that you might want to make available to your customers. Well, you know, uh, I remember going to some very nerdy conferences in the early days, and I was with with certainty the only uh, person from the banking industry participating at the time. Uh, so, so uh, it didn't have much attention in in the in the tradfi sector at the moment. That's for sure, at, at that time, for sure. But. Uh, I mean, I looked at it as a potential asset, uh, which which was perhaps less uh, obvious at the time than it is today, because there wasn't an awful lot of trading places or very complicated to buy and sell. But uh, but but it had like the the feel of a fiat currency, which uh, which uh, had uh, been our mainstream business for for a long time. Uh, spent a lot of time in, in traditional foreign exchange, and of course. Uh, Crypto and tokens and coins, uh, seen from a trading perspective, is is somewhat uh, somewhat uh, reminiscent of, of that, right? So, uh, so that was the interest. But then, uh, as as time passed by, I realized that there's much more to it. And and as I said, uh, really fascinated by the blockchain technology for sure, TradFi, which has a lot of horribly inefficient processes, a lot of single point right. of failure that sometimes break down and create lots of problems, uh, Lehman Brothers style events, right? Uh, so, uh, and, and a lot of settlement issues and cost and cross-border complications that uh, this seems to, to potentially solve. So I, I still think that uh, it has a lot to offer TradFi and uh, and uh, while that's not the lowest hanging fruit due to regulation, I, I'm sure that eventually it will play a big role in, in how we do uh, trading in financial assets on a broader basis. Let's dig into some of that. I would love to get your survey of where we currently stand in the traditional financial space. I think a lot of people uh, learned in the 2007-2008 financial crisis era and then 2012 in Europe about some of the challenges that were in the system. Uh, things like custody, counterpoint, party risk, uh, a lack of transparency in some of these assets. I'm very curious as someone who uh, has been in this system for a very long time to get your view of how you see the system functioning today and what some of those weaknesses limitations and potential breakpoints might be? I don't think that the sort of key uh, breakpoints have, have improved much. I think they're still the same. We recently saw a run on a, on a couple of American banks, right? We saw Credit Suisse getting into trouble. So uh, I'm not sure things have changed that much. You know, settlement is still pretty inefficient, uh, expensive to do uh, transactions. Uh, no finality uh, in, in, in this space, right? So things can be rolled back. Uh, so the, I, I think there's still a lot of issues to solve, right? And, and, and then I think there's a lot of new stuff to offer. The whole aspect of tokenization, I think, will be uh, very, very interesting to TradFi when they realize fully that they can now give access to new asset classes in a, in a, in a, to, to, to assets that are largely uninvestable today. That they can be they can be now accessible to a broader public through tokenization and fractionalizing of assets. So uh, 
I think that could be a big icebreaker into the industry. But of course, it, it has to be a slow mover for, for the few reasons that the number one consideration when you are considering a new product in, uh, in TradFi is regulation. And the, the, the second and third points are also regulation and regulation, right? So until we have a, a much clearer framework there, I, I think that, that, that the TradFi sector will have to hesitate to enter into this. It's not that the interest is not there. It's not that some of the, the more visionary people can't see the benefits, but they just need to have a very clear regulatory framework in order to adopt it in a serious way. So at this point, it tends to be experiment sandbox stuff, you know, how could it work uh, and, and awaiting regulatory uh, clarification, right? Yeah, that's something I totally agree with and something that we talk about a great deal here on this show, uh, regulatory, legal compliance, legislative, all of those points. Uh, something we're going to talk about in just one second, but I just wanted to dig down on one other point that you made uh, where you said uh, that the system really hasn't changed that much since the 2007-2008 vintage challenges. I would argue uh, that the one change that we've seen has been a change for the worse, and it's been driven by technology. Uh, which is what we see. You mentioned the, some of the challenges we had in regional banks here in the United States uh, in terms of bank runs and capital flight. You know, interestingly enough, technology and not uh, Bitcoin technology, but this technology, right? Your cell phone that everybody carries around in their pocket. What do you do if you're, you uh, are a company, if you're the CFO or treasurer of a company, you've got $10 million deposited at a bank significantly above the FDIC limit. Uh, the second that you hear uh, that there is a risk that there might be a bank failure, you grab your phone, uh, and you start transferring all the assets you humanly can to your local GSIP, right? Your, uh, the, this idea that you move to a globally systemic important bank because uh, they're too big to fail, so-called SIFIs here in the United States. That's something that's changed really dramatically since the 2007-2008 era and not for the better. I mean, back in the old days, uh, going back <clears throat> to the 1980s, this savings and loan crisis, a, a very quick bank run uh, took weeks. Uh, now it's hours. I fully agree, and uh, thinking back, you know, at the Northern Rock Bank rock, uh, bank run in, in in the UK, where people were queuing up down the streets to try to get their money out, you know, clearly that's a lot easier now. And you're right, why take chances if you uh, if you are overexposed or, or or uncovered with a financial institution, and you can move you can move uh, money very very fast. So you're absolutely right that uh, actually the risk of of, of very rapid bank runs are probably worsened rather than than the opposite. On the flip side, I would say, I think the regulators and, and the central banks, et cetera, learned a lot from uh, from the, the, the big financial crisis back in 2008, where they were not prepared to, to move in and, and actually let Lehman go over a weekend. You saw how quickly they reacted to the recent troubles in, uh, in the US. So you can say the system is more prepared for those types of, of, of rapid bank runs, but uh, but the fact that they can occur is uh, is absolutely uh, becoming much easier with technology. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the 
2012 vintage when you came into the space that those were very early days. You know, in my view, when we look back at this from the perch of, you know, 2040, 2045, we're still going to see the days that we're in right now today in 2023 as very early days uh, because there's still a great deal of integration to take place uh, between the traditional banking system uh, and the digital asset space. I know this is controversial. I know there are a lot of sort of politically loaded issues in this, but I want to talk about those three points that you uh, just raised a few moments ago that are top and first and foremost in your mind in this space, compliance, compliance, and compliance. Where do you see where we are today? Obviously here in the United States, we're in this period that many perceive to be a regulatory tightening phase. Uh, talk a little bit about the current state of affairs that you see in the digital asset space from the perspective of legal, regulatory, and compliance. I agree that we are at a very early stage here and uh, much as the industry and we like to think ourselves very big and very important and, and very disruptive is still just a drop in the ocean, right? So it's also not too late to come up with great ideas and, 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 and be part of it. It's a little bit like the internet in the late 90s or something like that, right? Uh, before it really took off and uh, that of course opens a lot of opportunities, but it also means that it's fairly predictable in my view what's going to happen. Now regulation is typically a fairly slow process because what needs to happen is that first there needs to be some asset that that uh, that uh, gets attention. Secondly, you need to identify how does it work. Thirdly, what are the issues with it? Then you got to prepare legislation. Then you got to get legislation voted through the parliament. Then you need to to get it implemented, right? So, so regulation per definition has to be a slow process. On the other hand, once that process is rolling, it's never ending. And I think there's a rather naive belief in, 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 in this industry that if we could just get, you know, regulation in place and we all know what we have to deal with and we can move on. Now, that's not the way regulation works. That, that continues to the end of time, right? With, with right. new issues being identified, with, with new tightenings of, of areas, uh, with, 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 with new, new issues occurring that uh, needs addressing that has been unknown before. So uh, we are also at an early stage of, of regulation, but I must admit one of the reasons I started Concordium back in, in, in early 18 uh, was really that, that I consider this, uh, this development completely un, uh, inevitable. You know, it's not a 99% probability, it's a 100% probability because I watched it uh, in, in decades in TradFi, right? And, and, and regulation will come when there's something that looks like a financial asset, when there's something that looks like trading, when there's financial gains and losses, you know, the regulator will, will take an interest in it and feel responsibility for it. And maybe not that unreasonable, to be honest, because also we've seen, we've seen a number of, of excesses in this space where, where, where people were, were lured into things that, that, that where there was absolutely no redress or, or, or no framework. So I think it's a natural evolution. It's very predictable. I think regulation will ultimately maybe look slightly different than what we know from TradFi because it's a different technology and it's different to, uh, to some of the stuff that they're used to, but the outcomes that regulation will look for will be the same. And that is protection of the retail, protection of, of, of weak uh, parties in the market. It's about, uh, it's about proper KYC, protection against money laundering, tariff financing, 
and ultimately it's also about capital adequacy you know uh, if you if if you are trading and you get it wrong are you in a position to actually cover your losses right uh, so i think uh, we we can expect something that looks very much like what we've seen in the past so i think this is fairly predictable and as i said it will continue till the end of time because that's the nature nature of regulation and uh, there's no it, it, it would be very irresponsible not to prepare for it, even if it's not very clear yet. And, and again, there's some things that are always going to be essential in, in, in regulation. ID is, is the cornerstone of all of this because KYC, AML procedures, etc., are academic if you're not sure that, uh, that, that, that you know, who, who, who you're dealing with, right? So that's why we started with ID uh, because we think uh, that that is the cornerstone of, of, of actually most interactions in society, uh, particularly if money and, and assets are involved. And, and, and there's just no way that that's not going to be applicable across this industry uh, all over the place. Uh, but, but it takes time and there's time to prepare for it. And a good regulator actually gives you time to prepare for it. They will implement a rule and they will say comply with this rule inside 12 months, 18 months, whatever, typically. and. Uh, and you have time to to adjust, but if you don't, you will suffer the consequences. The flip side of it is you will actually see more business because the TradFi industry was the Wild West back in the 80s and well into the 90s in Europe. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, people were not comfortable using many of these services when regulation came. Obviously, it puts some people that were not serious and didn't want to comply put them out of out of out of business but the people that actually embraced it and and did what had to be done was re, were rewarded by multiple small business in, in in the coming years and i think that's the silver lining and this is it is necessary for mainstream adoption it is necessary to see this space really take off and the people that are willing to embrace it and meet the requirements uh, most of those being quite reasonable actually uh, well, they will be rewarded by by much more business and much more adoption. Lars, let me ask you just the one big picture skeptical question that I hear, and I know that you hear too. I, I have a lot of smart friends, believe it or not, who are in the TradFi space who are still skeptical about cryptocurrency as a decentralized asset. And the argument that they make is, yes, Ash, you're right. Digitization is coming. More automation is coming. But it's not going to be decentralized it's going to be centralized, it's going to be run by big financial institutions. Obviously, those of us who are in the space who are passionate about decentralization disagree with that statement. What's your view on why the future will not just be digitized, but also decentralized? Well, I think that the, the, the regulator will have a preference for centralized uh, organizations because uh, it's easier to hold somebody accountable and it's easier to find somebody to speak to if there's something you're concerned about. That being said, I think actually in many ways blockchain could also be a regulator's wettest dream, right? Because at the end of the day, it gives you an audit trail that uh, that that uh, is very clear. Whereas if you're dealing in in a traditional foreign exchange markets and the the whole the whole uh, line of trading is is very opaque and and often ends up in jurisdictions where you you, you can't necessarily easily access the information. So. In a way, uh, this, this this audit trail that's created by the by by a blockchain should be very attractive to uh, to regulators. And the other point being that neither financial sector nor uh, regulators like single points of failure. And we have had our fair share of individual institutions uh, 
you know, failing or because of lack of risk management, uh, malpractices, negligence, including central banks all over the world regularly uh, fail in, 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 in certain economies, right? So I think that uh, there's a there's an advantage to decentralization if if uh, if it, it if it feels to be possible to control and achieve those outcomes I mentioned before that a regulator will also appreciate that the, the risk of, of catastrophic single points of failure will be significantly reduced and the audit trail will be better. So I think uh, I think regulators are in, in some areas beginning to understand that. It also provides some funding mechanisms. You know, there's a lot of problems with, with funding SMEs, particularly in the traditional financing system. And uh, and I think that, uh, in fact, I know that, that some of the people designing these laws uh, appreciate the opportunities that uh, that blockchain could bring to to uh, to improving these areas. So uh, I think there's an understanding that the good regulators are willing to listen to input. Uh, they will take it into account. They have to fit into some outcomes that that uh, they see as desirable and politicians uh, see as desirable, but that they also in many places actually recognize that there's a lot of benefits to blockchain. So uh, I, I think that uh, this will eventually work out fine. The only thing is you got to make the decision. Are you willing to accept that it becomes like that or do you want to live on the fringe? I mean, you still have a few brokers living on the fringe of the TradFi system. They don't have very great businesses. They uh, they uh, don't have very great lives because they have to look over their shoulder all the time. But but they, but if you want to have a big business and mainstream adoption, uh, there's no choice. You have to you have to uh, comply. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. So now that we've covered some of the big picture topics, your overall view of the space, let's talk about some of the use cases that you mentioned. You mentioned uh, that your first use case is in identification. Let's talk about the Concordium project, uh, what the purpose of it is, what you see the scope of it being, and fundamentally what you see those first use cases being in terms of the sequencing and how that technology uh, and use cases come online. Well, as I as I mentioned before, you know, being quite enthusiastic about the early generations, uh, I was still the CEO of, of of Saxo Bank in my day job, inundated with regulations and new legislation and multiple jurisdictions and all this, and I found it hard to reconcile. So what I what I did was actually sit down and 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 say what 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 are the problems we really have to solve here, and I think. Uh, Anonymity is very, very high on the list, and uh, that that is just unacceptable to have parts of a system uh, uh, anonymous. And I don't think we should expect that that will be that will be uh, accepted in 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 the longer term. You know, transfers will have to be possible to ID who transfers to who, uh, and 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 that's just the way it's going to be, whether you like it or not, right? Uh, so. I think, again, ID is a fundamental building block of all trust in society. And, and actually, we use a lot of middlemen for, uh, for providing these uh, trusted uh, intermediaries. Sometimes that trust is misplaced and not well deserved, but but fact is that we use middlemen all the time. So the more you can uh, enable people to, to uh, be identifiable, to be directly trustworthy, that will open up for a lot more peer-to-peer -peer, uh, uh, types of business models uh, uh, where, where you can actually trust the counterpart. 
but uh, but but that depends very much on ID, and therefore we put that at the core of it. It's it's uh, not us issuing the IDs. You can choose between various ID trusted ID issuers, so you can make your own choice who you want to trust with the ID. We don't publish the ID. We actually allow a lot of privacy around what you do, as long as we know that you have been willing to to go through an ID process. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't take your privacy seriously knowledge proofs and a lot of technology can can help you uh, preserve privacy but uh, but we just also want to see that the user is willing to be accountable now there's a lot of benefits from the users as well because uh, on concordium i can prove with certainty to you that i'm lost and you can prove with certainty your identity to me so if that's something we need to know for some reason, well, we have the option of doing that. It's under my control whether I want to disclose that to you and vice versa. So it's not something where you, you can just go in and take that information. But if you have a reasonable request because you want to do a piece of business with me and I want to do that piece of business and, and I can see it's reasonable that you want to know what country I'm from or whether I'm over 18 or whether uh, I, I have this or that characteristic, all my full ID is under my control, but it might be a reasonable request. And if I'm not willing to provide it, you can say, well, I'm sorry, Lars, and we can't do that piece of business. Now, that's not needed everywhere. If you're dancing around at a virtual con uh, concert, maybe you, you don't need that information, just like you can go into a pub and order a beer and you don't want to see everybody's passport before you're comfortable having that beer, right? But but if you end up making a bet on the football match, uh, running, in the screen uh, in the pub and, and 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 the one you're betting will say if i lose i'll pay you tomorrow uh well then then maybe you want to know that guy's id right so it's horses for courses and it's about having the opportunity to actually with certainty prove that you are something uh if you want to and 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 for another person to be able to at least request that information and be sure that if i do uh, comply and tell you that it's true and i think that that need will only grow with with AI, with deep fakes, with metaverses, where you can very easily and may even enjoy being something other than your sort of real life self. That's fine for some use cases, but in some cases where there's a transfer of value or a social relation or something, you might want to know who you're dealing with. And we try to provide that opportunity. Let me ask you this, because it is a very controversial point in the space. You mentioned that identity is coming, uh, whether you like it or not. There are lots of folks out there in the space who do not like it, who are very passionate about things like credible neutrality and anonymity in transactions. They would say, for example, if you have a bet in a pub, the best way to do that is with a smart contract over Ethereum or some other layer one protocol uh, where you can essentially lock the funds and so it becomes a trustless system. I'm curious, uh, when you go around and you speak, what's the reception you've gotten uh, from this viewpoint on the world, both from the traditional finance community on the one hand, uh, who it may not be rigorous enough for, uh, and on the other from the digital asset community who may feel uh, that it's an encumbrance? When I started sort of uh, realizing that, that the discrepancy between what I saw in my day job and, and my free time, uh, it wasn't a very popular message. But to me, it's evident that that's, that is going to happen, right? Now, of course, you can't enforce that on, on anyone. You could also open a brokerage down the road and, and just take people's money. But after a while, somebody would come asking, you know, are you regulated? So, uh, of course, you, you, you can't shut down a system uh, that's anonymous uh, and uh, because that's the whole beauty of a blockchain that, that you can't actually shut it down. You don't have a single point of failure. But you can just assume that uh, that you're not going to get mainstream adoption on it because most people actually 
have no issue with with identifying themselves as long as they know that it's kept private and they know that everybody else on the system is, so that is a comfort factor. And secondly, if you want to do it without complying to rules, well, you can do that in any industry also today. You're just going to get a more complicated life, right? And, and that's up to you. Uh, but but there might be consequences of not complying with legislation because there always is, right? And one consequence will for sure be that you're not going to get bigger serious businesses working with you. Uh, and, and another consequence might be that you're going to get some difficulties, right? But who am I to say what people want to do with their lives? Uh, I'm, I'm just saying we're offering an opportunity where we actually combine the possibility of, of having this ID with actually more privacy than you have on the average blockchain. Uh, so if you look at it today, uh, if you look at the original models, you have two anonymous parties, everything they do is uh, is completely uh, transparent, right? Uh, that would be sort of the opposite of what we know from, from traditional things. You have two parties, they can have privacy, but they're known and they're accountable. Uh, and what they do can, can be private. You know, it's a little bit like a, a bank where they would need to know uh, uh, who you are, but they are not going to post your bank account on the internet for all to see, right? So I think actually most people would prefer that to uh, having all of their information posted on the internet and not having a clue about who they were dealing with. But but of course, there are people in this industry that that came from a different point of departure. And uh, I'm not I'm not a regulator. I'm not going to tell people what to do. I'm just trying to offer a solution that actually that actually will work for people that, that want to put serious use cases on blockchain. Yeah, speaking of folks uh, who are in the space, we've got some questions pouring into us right now. And these are really good ones. And I wanted to ask, uh, the first one comes from Paul on the Real Vision website. Uh, Paul wants to know how will the launch of FedNow in July affect crypto? I should probably give a little bit of background and context on this for folks who may not know. Uh, so FedNow is an instant payment system developed uh, by the Federal Reserve uh, here in the United States. It's not owned by the government. Uh, this is not a CBDC. This is not a liability of the government. Uh, and it is a privately owned entity. It's a consortium of U.S. banks that are running this. Uh, but the question to you, Lars, is does that have an impact on the crypto space? I think there are a lot of people out there uh, who see this system. By the way, I should say it's 24 by 7, 365 uh, in terms of its availability of the system. Uh, significantly more availability than Fedwire and ACH today. Uh, talk a little bit about how those innovations, specifically FedNow, might impact the use case for cryptocurrency. I think, for example, in, in, in my home country, Denmark, we've had a system like that for a very long time where you can very easily transfer money between people. Uh, you, have a, you have a national ID register which you can very easily hook up to. Uh, so, uh, so, so this, uh, of course, will come. I mean, even the TradFi sector will become more efficient uh, over time, right? And this, I guess, is an example of it. Uh, will it affect uh, the, the, the use case for crypto? Well, if all transfers were as easy as uh, as transferring a Bitcoin or, or, or another token, well, presumably it would because it would take away some of the use case for it. I just think the use case is much, much deeper because I, I don't foresee these systems running, as you said, smart contracts and, 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 and running all sorts of, of interesting stuff that you can run on a blockchain, but for pure payment. Uh, we've had that for, for a very long time in Denmark, for example. And uh, does that affect the case for crypto? Yeah, if you're not sort of a core use and you just needs to transfer money from one place to another, maybe it does. But uh, because at the end of the day, the problem right now is the inefficiency of 
transfers and settlement and the costing included in it, right? It also depends a little bit on what are the costs going to be for this system, uh, and I don't know about it, but uh, but uh, but of course the, the the sort of group of people that just wants to transfer value from 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 themselves to a family member or something like that. Uh, well, maybe they will have less use for a crypto solution. Uh, and uh, for the diaspora of an African country where a lot of people working abroad have to send small amounts back home, uh, which I think is a very strong use case for crypto because yeah. otherwise you have to go through Western Union and pay them a, an enormous fee for sending a, a small payment. Uh, if that system became global and, uh, and 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 efficient you know obviously one of those use cases would disappear i don't see it being being global anytime soon it's sort of something you do in little areas it takes time to adopt like any other new technology but but i right. just think that the use cases for blockchain are so much deeper than than just the money transfer in fact i think that's probably one of the less interesting parts yeah, I agree, although I do think you're also right about the idea of the international remittances use case, an incredibly powerful one. Uh, you have folks literally laboring under the sun and paying, uh, in many cases, uh, more than a month of their labor just to an institution to transfer the money back to their families. It's just not a sustainable model. Uh, Lars, we've got one other great question, uh, and this is about Concordium, and it comes to us directly from Jacob on YouTube. Uh, Hello, Lars. Is it correct that Concordium doesn't know the ID? and that no one can track an account back to an ID. I can open a number of accounts on my ID and one can't be connected to another. That question coming to us from Jacob about Concordium. It is correct that uh, that we do not know the ID because as I, as I mentioned that that is uh, outsourced to a trusted ID issuer which, uh, which uh, you can choose. So, so you can make your own research on, on who you, you want to do that with. They actually can't access the ID either, but you get a copy of that ID in, in your wallet, which you can then use in the various ways that I described, right? We have a complex system subject to due legal process of, of uh, an, uh, privacy revocation. If somebody, a regulator comes with a court order or, or a, a mandate that, that's in law, we have external law firms that will evaluate that and through a multi-sig will be able to retrieve that ID. Now, in terms of you being able to build, uh, having several accounts with, with the same ID, well, you, you can have several bank accounts with the same ID. We have the possibility of linking these together, have some of them more private than others. So if you, if you wanna have what we call a shielded account or a shielded amount, you can move that to a shielded account and somebody outside will not uh, be able to see that link, but uh, but but of course you'll have the ID and all of those accounts. So something untoward should happen there, subject to a very stringent legal process. Uh, you you would be able to to find the ID of that of that. So it doesn't really matter that much if they're interconnected or not, uh, because I have several TradFi bank accounts. In all of those, I have my ID. They're not linked to each other per se. Uh, sometimes I transfer money from one account. Sometimes I transfer from another account, but if I did something that merited a legal process, you know, my ID would be on both of the accounts in any case, right? Lars, we really appreciate you coming and joining us. It's such an important piece of this puzzle to have someone who's forward thinking in the traditional finance space, interested in building out digital architecture on blockchain. Such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. 
Everybody, listen, we're committed to keeping great content like this free for everyone. If you're on YouTube, please smash the like button and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date. That's it for today's show. Make sure to check out our website. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's free to sign up for our crypto content. Tomorrow on the show, we'll have the head of business development at Lido. Join us live for the interview. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern time, 5 p.m. in London. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.